Haggai chapter 2 is where we're at tonight, picking back up in the middle of chapter 2. And we'll go, it'll be a little bit shorter section uh, this evening, but we're going through the end of chapter 2. <clears throat> shorter section might be a shorter evening, shorter study as well. But the break was kind of awkward to take the next big chunk after that. Um, so we'll probably be two more weeks in Malachi, uh, ch- basically chapter 3 and then chapter 4. Um, so just recall, this is the disputation genre prophet, one of the post-exilic prophets, the last of them, um, and probably prerequisite to Ezra when Ezra showed up, um, largely because of the content of tonight. Tonight, the prophet addresses the uh, malpractice of the people, which is their intermarriage and their infidelity uh, to, to the marriage covenant. And when Ezra shows up on the scene, probably a little bit after Malachi, then that's the first topic of conversation that they have with Ezra. They say, we've sinned against the Lord and we've intermarried. Um, sounds like Malachi may have already been around and addressed the topic with them, so it was on their minds. Um, <clears throat> So, you recall last week we looked at uh, middle of chapter 1 through middle of chapter 2, primarily at the disputation uh, revolving around the priests and the worship system and their malpractice uh, in misleading the people. And the accusation was that they were despising the name of God and making it contemptible. And they were doing that by um, disregarding his worship system. So they were giving false sacrifices, sacrifices of the lame and the sick, uh, making big promises and not keeping them. Uh, you'll see verse 13 of chapter 1, they, they thought what God had said was such a weariness and they sneered at it. And uh, the primary point that God was trying to make about the importance of his name would be found in verse 11 of chapter 1, that it was his intention from the rising of the sun to the going down that his name was going to be upheld. It would be made great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense would be offered to his name, a pure offering, so true undefiled worship. Uh, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And then you see the last verse of chapter 1, the second half of it. He says, for I am a great king. My name is to be feared among the nations. So that's what God is after, is the fear of the Lord in all the earth. That's what he's going ultimately to accomplish. We've seen that in some of the other prophets. That's what he's going to accomplish at the day of the Lord. Um, But it is what he was um, by covenant intending to accomplish with the Uh, the Old Covenant people as well. So the example he gave of that in chapter 2, which was to the shame of the priest, was that he had made a covenant with Levi, and to a degree it had worked. And Levi had feared before him. Levi had led the people in righteous worship. Um, Injustice was not found on Levi's lips. The law of truth was in Levi's mouth. Therefore, it should be in this uh, this set of Levitical priest mouths as well. Um, but it was not. They had departed from their ways and by extension caused many people to stumble at the law. So God's not happy 
Uh, God's not accepting their worship. So he turns in this next disputation from his attention on the leaders and the priests to the people generally, um, particularly in this case, the husbands, the men, and how they had not upheld the covenant either. They had not upheld their responsibility. And we see the example is primarily of marriage, both in marrying who they should not have and divorcing those that they should not have. So we'll flesh that out a little bit tonight. We'll go ahead and read chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. So one verse shy of the end of the chapter. Uh, it says, Have we not all one Father? Have we not, or has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's uh, holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Uh, yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth." For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. There's two parts, really, to this section. Verses 10 through 12 is the first section, and then 13 through 16 is the second. So, in this first statement, uh, 10 through 12, there's the general accusation, and it's coming from the voice now of Malachi, the prophet. So he speaks and asks some rhetorical questions right off the bat uh, to the people of Israel. So have we not all one Father, and has not God created us? So he begins either with associating all of them with the patriarchs or with Yahweh, which is two different things, but can sort of functionally do the same thing. He's calling them back to their heritage in the promises of God. And the, the way that these two work, these are the if questions. If the answer to these is yes, and it is, then he's going to ask why is the following happening. So uh, if we have one father, whether that is Abraham, the, our covenant father, or even Jacob, our most recent covenant father, if, if that's where we're united from, um, or if we're united in Yahweh, the same covenant would be called to attention either way. Um, and has not one God created us? And here we'll, you see that he's going to be anticipating some of the idolatry that intermarriage introduces. Uh, intermarriage introduces. So uh, if, we're f if we're from one God... 
and it's his covenant that's held us together as a family and we're loyal to the God of that covenant, then why is there disunity? If we, if we have unity from Yahweh, then why are we expressing disunity in the way that we're interacting as a community? So why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? And that introduces a word, their treacherous dealings, that's kind of the theme of this section. Um, it is this is the description of their malpractice, that they have been treacherous to covenants. And you can see already that multiple covenants are going to be brought into play um, in their treachery. So they've been treacherous to the covenant of Yahweh. They have been treacherous to the covenant of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And as we'll see, they've also been treacherous to the covenants, the marriage covenant that they've made. So if we have unity in God as the creator and covenant giver, then why are we expressing treacherous interactions with one another by profaning, defiling the covenant of the fathers? So there's the general statement or the general accusation. Now what's the, what's the support or the evidence that they have dealt treacherously? Well, here's verse 11, and there's two examples in verse 11. Uh, first, another summary statement. Judah has done this. Judah has dealt treacherously. This is the returned community of Judah. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. What is this abomination? What is this treachery? And keep in mind that in a covenant community, an abomination is something that threatens the community as a whole. It's not just something that an individual person does. Think historically to an example like Achan. When God commands that something not be done to the covenant community and a member of the community breaks God's command, then it threatens uh, God's even anger or invites God's anger, his curse against the family as a whole because there's sin in the camp. And so sin in the camp is a very, uh, or abominations being committed is a very dangerous thing even as it re regards your treatment of your neighbor. Uh, we all must uphold, or they all must uphold uh, the standards of the community together. So what is this abomination? They have unity? No, then why disunity? Why this treacherous abomination that's been committed in Israel? What is it? Uh, example number one. Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. Um, out of curiosity, do we have other translations beside the New King James for that statement? Uh, Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. Brandon? Okay, instead of institution, it has the Lord's holy sanctuary or the Lord's sanctuary? The sanctuary of the Lord. Okay, so instead of holy institution, you have sanctuary. Any others aside from Nasby? You have you have King James done? It says for Judah has profaned the holiness of the Lord. Okay, the holiness of the Lord rather than the holy institution. Uh, any others immediately? Yeah. Okay, sanctuary of the Lord. Okay, so there is obviously a, a, some a, an interpretation at play here. 
Um, you'll notice if you are reading New King James that institution is in italics, which means it has been supplied for clarity's sake. So the words are the Lord's holy, which he loves. So the Lord's holiness is the way that we would read that. And the question is, what is the Lord's holiness? There are other places in Scripture when that word is used that it's very clearly referring to the temple. The temple is the place of the Lord's holiness. And so that's why you would have in NASB and ESV the Lord's sanctuary. It's his place of dwelling. It is the holy of holies. That's where his holiness is visible or expressed amongst the covenant community. Um, or we could, that would be an interpretive reading of the word holiness. The word holiness is what's there. Now we have holy institution because here the interpreters were saying this revolves around marriage. Like you look at the next phrase, uh, you, they're viewing that as a parallel phrase. So the, the Judas profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign God. So what is the Lord's holiness? The Lord's holiness is his institution of marriage, is that interpretation. So we have the temple as an option. We have marriage as an option. And probably my preference to this point in the depth that I've studied this would be to read it as the Lord's holiness, which he loves, and to maintain holiness as that characteristic of God, um, his attribute of holiness his set-apartness. So that's visibly expressed in the temple. Uh, it's even, to a degree, covenantally expressed in marriage, a unique, the uniqueness of a union. Um, but here, his first point of treacherous abomination seems to be that Judah has profaned God's holiness, and God loves his holiness that which sets him completely apart, that which you makes, him, makes him uniquely consecrated to his glory and to his pleasure, that which is, so keep, keep in mind that it's not just marriage on the table, but what marriage meant, what intermarriage meant for the people of Judah, namely, worshiping other gods, desecrating God's holiness, not being wholly set apart to him as the covenant people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they've welcomed in infidelity religiously through their marriages. Um, so I think that's point number one. The, the point number one evidence is that Judah has profaned the holiness of God, which is very precious to God. The main way that they've done that, evidence two or description of evidence one, you might say, is Judah has married the daughter of a foreign god. So this was something that you were familiar, was uh, not wise for them to do. I'll read probably one of the most explicit commands that they not, and that's Deuteronomy chapter 7. probably too long for the 
setting, but 7, 1 through 11 is the whole section. So when the Lord your God brings you into the land, which you go to possess, check, that's been done, and has cast out many nations before you, okay, the Hittites, Girgashites, uh, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut the, down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. So there's the main point. There's the main declaration not to do that. But I do want to keep reading because this is the reason that God had told them not to do that. For you are a holy people to the Lord. God loves his holiness as demonstrated in his people. You are holy. You're set apart for him alone. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. The Lord does not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you. And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him whom he hates, who hates him, he will repay him face to face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which I command you today to observe them. So that fleshes out, I think, the, the, state, the, the paired statement. Judah profaned the Lord's holiness, which, which God loves, by marrying the daughter of a foreign god, which turned their hearts away from the Lord and aroused the Lord's anger against them. So the, the problem is not just you married the wrong girl. The problem is idolatry. The problem is apostasy. The problem is endangering the covenant community by inviting the anger of Almighty God against them. It's a very dangerous thing. And they've sort of done it wholesale. They're doing it flippantly, freely, as led by the priest, right? Oh, what a weariness. And we sneer at the commands of God. Let's just do things our way. We'll find out next week, where is the God of justice anyways? Uh, the wicked are the blessed. And so they're living in this just free adulter covenant adultery. So that's the problem. Uh, the judgment from Malachi, very strong, verse 12 he says, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, uh, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So remember last week, maintaining sin with worship. That's what they're doing here. Um, and the result would be God does not accept their offering or hear that God would cut off from Jacob the people who are doing this. Um, that phrase, being awake and aware, is 
has a range of interpretations. Maybe again, uh, do you have other translations of being awake and aware? What's ESV, Garrett? Sorry, uh, middle of verse 12, the man who does this, the phrase being awake and aware. Okay, so the descendant is the way they're translating that. Um, that's because one way to interpret this awake and aware is basically grandpa, grandchild. So like the one who comes from. So there's descendant. Okay, master and scholar. So the one teaching and the one learning. What was Nasby? Okay, so the person who rises, basically, the speaker and the responder. So you can kind of see there's a, a wide variety of ways to take these two words. Um, what we are confident of is that it's describing the scope of people who have offended. This is the, the group that should be cut off. And undeniably, it's the people involved in this, the people involved in the abomination, um, but in what way exactly is he drawing that? It could be something legal. It's, it could be something instructive. It could be something generational. And that's a little bit hard to discern as represented by all those translations. So, but the people involved, so may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the range of offenders, the proper range of offenders in this category. And, and these people, while offending, are maintaining some semblance of wanting God's favor wanting to worship, coming before him, giving him his offering, following the festivals, doing the things. Why is God so mad? Why can't we get him to smile upon us? Check yourselves, basically. That's what he's saying. Look at your lives. Um, okay, so that's part one. Introducing, um, yes, the marriage problem, but more strongly the um, apostasy problem that they've turned away from the covenant of Yahweh. Now, the second portion is, is more thoroughly getting into the marriage issue, um, or at least the, the breaking of the marriage issue. So the first, yeah, that's probably a better way to say it. The first one um, a, reveals the problem of committing to a marriage they should not have. And the second portion reveals the problem that they left marriages that they should not have. And we'll reconcile that as we walk through. But here in verse 13, and this is another thing, right? Here's the second thing you do. You, um, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he doesn't regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. God is not uh, turning away from their sacrifice because they are covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. I Meaning just very, very dramatic expressions, emotional expressions of, of worship and pleading and God, hear us. And, and you actually can hear a little bit of the false prophets of Baal in here, just a very dramatic expression of worship and, and crying and weeping and they're cutting themselves and all this stuff to try and get God's attention. He says, well, if you would do the right thing, Thing and say the like to the right God. You don't have to do all of that, all of the 
dancing and weeping and crying. So here, what I, I think the best, read, the best way to read so in the middle of verse 13, so he doesn't regard is because God doesn't regard the offering anymore. You go to the altar with weeping and wailing and please, God, hear us and accept our sacrifice because God clearly is not in favor of your offering any longer. He doesn't regard the offering anymore. Parallel line. Nor does he receive it with goodwill from your hands. He knows you. He knows your hearts. He knows what's going on truly. Therefore, he has no interest in the sacrifice. Um, increasingly, the example of Saul from last week is, is ringing true here, that God desires obedience more than he desires a drama, more than he desires, you know, a thousand rams slain on the altar. Okay, so here's the second thing they do. There's this dramatic worship because God's not receiving, receiving it any longer. Okay, they're saying, okay, so why not? Why isn't he hearing us? For what reason? Here's the bit of the interaction between the two parties. For what reason? Because, verse 14, why is your worship futile? Because the Lord has been witness. He's watched and seen what you've done between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt, here it is again, treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So, God is not receiving their worship because he saw how they treated their covenant companions. The most common interpretation of this, how is this working? If God's upset at them for marrying and upset at them for divorcing. And seems like if he was just upset at them for marrying the foreign gods, wouldn't he be happy with them for divorcing those wives? So the most common interpretation here is that the second came before the first that when they return, or even before their return, perhaps, that the wife of your youth, especially in the book of Proverbs, is described as your original, your true covenant companion. The one that you've known since you were, you know, the high school sweethearts is kind of the idea of that word. And what appears to have happened in the, in the quiet of the text is that they returned into the land, looked across the fence, hey, I like what I see over there. They divorced the wives that they had in the covenant, and they married women outside the covenant, thereby sort of committing this double atrocity. Either you destroyed one, and you made a new one, both in the wrong direction. So you might think of like, repentance as we were pursuing the wrong thing, but we turned to pursue the right thing. This is an anti-repentance. This is like, you had the right thing. You turned from it and went the wrong way instead. So certainly not what wisdom literature would be calling them to, which is to heed Lady Wisdom and go toward her. It's that they have chased dramatically 
Lady Folly loved her, slept with her, and now they have the fruit, which proverbially speaking is going to be children against the covenant. And that's, as we'll see in a moment, exactly what God does not desire. So they've done the, the wrong thing in both directions, which is why God is no longer hearing them. So you say, um, let's see, verse 14. There's three, you can note those three descriptions of this woman. So the first one is the one we just said, the wife of your youth. And then you see, yet she is your companion. And then number three, and your wife by covenant. That third one, uh, your wife by covenant, could either be your wife, um, like, like a restatement, the wife of your youth, or I think probably it's a reference back to the covenant of their fathers. The fact like, that she was the right choice. She was the wife inside Abraham. She was the one that Yahweh would have you to choose because she was, you know, in theory, at least one who feared the Lord, one who was inside the house of Israel. Uh, and then the middle one, meaning she is your companion. This was the one who is intended to be by your side, the one who is intended that you swore to walk beside, and now you've tossed her. Um, so everything is anti-righteousness here in the text. Verse 15 is another kind of a doozy literally and interpretation-wise. The point also being clear. So I'm curious, some other, let's go through those same maybe four translations. So, but he did not make them one, having a remnant, or, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? How does that read uh, King James? Okay, residue is remnant of the Spirit, otherwise similar. Okay, ESV? Oh, okay, so it's the same until portion, just remnant switch? Okay, Nasby? Um, the, the phraseology is a little bit different okay. from the beginning of verse 15. Yeah. It says, but not one, excuse me, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. Okay, so how could someone who has sort of the remnant of covenant or something like that have done something like this? Okay, this would be an argument for cutting them off. And then we had one more maybe, or no? Is that all of them? So there's, there's a few ways to read this as well. The, I, I do think the foundational point here is that is pointing back to Genesis um, 1 through 3, particularly chapter 2, and pointing out the purpose of oneness or one of God's purposes in oneness. So this would be um, a call also to um, the idea that God has made this union. It's something that he created, not only originally, but that each union is something that God births, right? The, the one plus one equals one the grand equation of marriage that doesn't make sense lest God forms it. So a union is the point. And here, as we're getting to, um, that they've been treacherous to the union, to the wife of their youth, is that they've destroyed that oneness. They've slaughtered it. They killed it. And that is treachery. So he's, he's calling back um, to the idea that God was involved in this. This is 
You said earlier that God was a witness to it. And here, or maybe even at the beginning, that God was the creator, insinuating his authority in this whole conversation. And now, uh, why one? Why did he make them this way? And it is because, end of verse 15, he see, or one of the reasons is that he seeks godly offspring. So this is an argument both for union and for inside covenant, meaning Yahweh union, not just marriage, but religious covenant union. Because the purpose in this young Israelite boy marrying a young Israelite girl is that they would have young covenant children that they would be raised in the covenant to raise a godly offspring, offspring who, in the same way that they do, fear the Lord, honor his precepts, uh, seek to, seek to de- desire to do that which God has called them to do. Um, and that's one of the intended purposes of marriage, something in some ways that our culture has certainly looked away from, is to separate Uh, the idea of procreation from the idea of union. Um, Not something that God has done here. He definitely describes that as one of the main purposes of of the one flesh relationship. Because that's the case, he's warning these guys. He's saying, you better be careful. You better watch out. And he says it two times in verses 15 and 16. He says, therefore, take heed to your spirit. Other, other people be warned by the, by the infidelity of, these, of this group. Let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Don't do what they've done. Watch yourself. Because this is God's perspective. So you have the rationale for the futility of their worship. Why is all of this you know, weeping and wailing and offering and grandiose sort of demonstrations of religiousness. Why is that futile? Because they were treacherous. And because this is God's perspective of their treachery, verse 16. Here's what God, the Lord God of Israel says. He hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with the violence, there's the word Hamas again, this violence, says the Lord of hosts, therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So the same phrase that we found at the bottom of verse 15 is at the bottom of verse 16. So there's been certainly misunderstanding around the phrase that God hates divorce. It's been um, used as kind of a catchphrase, even taken out of Malachi, not maybe intentionally, maybe not intentionally, but just like, well, we know that the Bible says God hates divorce. As though God would always hate that, uh, or, or as an argument to say you never should be divorced, right? And the difficulty in this text is that that's not what God's saying. What he's saying is, if we look holistically at verses 10 through 16, he's saying, I hate idolatry. I hate anti-covenant behavior. I hate this idea that you have left the covenant and you've joined to false gods and now that's your idea of purity. I hate that. I hate the mess that this has made. 
um, even as it relates to the specific marriage to their, the wife of their youth, I hate that you destroyed the thing that I made. Not to say that there never could be a case, a justifiable case, for acknowledging the death of a covenant. But as he says in the next line, this divorce covers one's garment with violence. This is anti-covenant behavior in both senses of the covenant. The sense of your marriage covenant and the sense of God, like the people of God, that this was not what he had wanted them to do. Again, to turn away from Lady Wisdom toward Lady Folly. Now that invites what in Proverbs? Great danger, right? The, the anger of God. Um, so in both senses, I think that this is true. In the sense that he hates their, the, he hates the death of the life of their marriage. He hates that. That's never what God wants, is for marriages to die. That's not who he is. And in this setting, he hates what it's meant religiously, that it's been a turning away from him and a turning toward Molech, Baal, all these other false gods, invitation toward um, idolatry. That, as Deuteronomy warned, covers them with violence. It invites cursing into the, commun- into the covenant community. Therefore, as he said at the end of 15, take heed dear spirit that you don't do this, that we don't deal treacherously. So it's, in summary, this is certainly a, it's a strong warning uh, a turning of attention from the leadership toward the impact of the leadership on the people and how many of them followed, as he said in chapter 2, verse 8, they stumbled at the law because the covenant of Levi was corrupted. There wasn't wise leadership, and so a lot of this was taking place, so much so that when Ezra shows up, it's kind of a wholesale like, hey, we all did this. Like, here's a really big mess and Ezra's left to try and walk wisely through, you know, no good options, basically. Um, again, this reiteration that it's a turning away from that which is good toward that which is evil, the exact opposite of what all people are called to do uh, when they listen to Lady Wisdom's voice. This is, by way of application, one of the strongest texts that would p- draw us toward a very sober-minded uh, very serious approach to covenant and how seriously God looks at it and how carefully he watches those who enter into it because he's forging, he's birthing something that day when vows are made and he doesn't take lightly what people do with it. Um, so there is this um, very strong encouragement. God just birthed this don't kill it. Like, allow it to flourish and grow and breathe life into it rather than the opposite. Um, The impact on the way that one treats marriage to how God receives their worship, that's echoed in the New Testament. When we walked through 1 Peter, remember 1 Peter 3, in that his uh, encouragement to the husbands is to 
live with their wives, understanding their vulnerability, that they are a weaker vessel, and treat them with honor as an equal, as a co-inheritor of life, lest their prayers be hindered. So there's something to the way that one interacts with their covenant spouse that impacts the covenant, the relationship with God, that he, that he you know, even back to like the Isaiah text that would say, you know, no, the arms of God aren't short, the ears of God aren't plugged, your sin is in the way. And uh, so it, it is um, incongruous for one to be in right worship relationship with God and in treacherous covenant relationship with their spouse. Those two don't go together. Uh, is, is kind of the underlying point, I think. So when the ear of God is closed, you say, for what reason? Well, the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your, your youth. Uh, there is an impact there. Um, between our sin and our relationship with God and uh, his reception of worship. Mostly because it reveals that there is untrue worship taking place. There is idolatry in the camp. Um, so, that's a perspective of uh, Malachi 2, the next disputation. We have a few minutes. Thoughts or questions? interactions on the severity here of marriage. Yeah. Back in uh, <clears throat> verse 11, he talks about he has married the daughter of a strange god. Yeah. I've got a reference there back to uh, Nehemiah mm-hmm. uh, chapter 13 and verses 23 and 24. He says, in those days also I saw Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab, and their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. So not only is the husband and wife corrupted, but their kids become wholesale corrupted as well, which was, was hinted at. Yeah, in 15b. Verse 15 there. Yep. This is a, a specific for instance. Absolutely. That's a good, that's a good cross-reference as well. That, uh, this is an, that was an example that the children did not walk in the ways of Yahweh. They didn't know the ways of God because the men's hearts had been drawn away by these women. It's hard for me to understand what he means, what he's getting at when he says, therefore, take heed to your spirit. Yeah, um, I, th- I think uh, it, part of this is connected to verse, the beginning of verse 15 still, um, and a possible connection between the Spirit, having a remnant of the Spirit, just meaning the, the person himself. So I think a fair way to think of it is to say, is to say watch yourself, the person, your spirit, um, the ruach. The, the thing that has set us apart um, as humanity to, to be careful about how we conduct ourselves. Would that be the same thing as like 2 Corinthians 15 where it says, 
I'd have to go look at Second Corinthians 15. Uh, but, oh, you just mean take heed. Yeah, yeah. Y- like yes, yes, generally, like uh, um, even as uh, Paul would encourage Timothy, like uh, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Uh, so yeah, this awareness of what we're doing, the impact of what we're doing, how we conduct ourselves. Yeah, Garrett. absolutely accurate in that that's a part of what marriage is, is a covenant of companionship. Interestingly, this word is most normally used of two, it's more of an equals word. It's more of like a two guys in business word, your companion, uh, the one by your side is kind of the idea of it, maybe two soldiers. And so it is in that that word does bring to the table strong sort of like equal imagery, the one like with you at your right hand, uh, your strength, your help, um, the union and togetherness. So yes, I think that's generally a good way to think of it, even beyond that word in this text. Um, but yeah, this would, that would help supply a good definition, I think. Okay. Oh, sorry. You may have mentioned this, and I didn't pick it up, but when it says you covered the altar of the Lord with tears, weeping and crying, mm-hmm. is not because they uh, were weeping and crying because the Lord was not listening to them? Yes. That's the point I was trying to make, that I think the second half of the verse describes why the first half of the verse was taking place. Um, so yeah, I, this is the historic covenant people of God who sense disfavor. Like he's not with us, he's not for us. And his prophets are coming to us, correcting us once again. And, and there's this instruction not to do what, the, what our fathers did, but we're already doing, we're already there. And the priest system, priestly system is already disregarded. And so there, there is the tradition, <laughs> the sad tradition in Israel to move that way and then to just cry out, and so that, that seems to be what's happening here, is that they know that God is not regarding the offering anymore. And so they are, there's, there's a grand drama of repentance, a show of religion that's not genuine here. Otherwise, he would receive it. Matt? So I just wanted to give an example. Yeah. Well, that might be helpful. Um, of how... Taking God hates divorce out of context. Yeah. Like you mentioned before, as Bud well said, um, I've heard and I've seen that that used then as like a club. Well, God hates divorce, not just to say there's no reason for it, but even to shift the blame from what is actually wrong. From yeah, the wronged party to being the wrong party when they pursue divorce. So an individual who's been suffering abuse or adultery, their their spouses uh, forsaken them, and they go for counsel, and a pastor says, "Well, God hates divorce." You're stuck. You're stuck. Instead of what Jesus actually said, you're not. Mm -hmm. But the idea, and then from that, it's used as like the club. Therefore, God hates divorce. Instead of, like you said in the text, that he even says, do not be, he doesn't end up text saying, guard yourselves and don't get divorced. 
in verse 16, right? Right, guard yourself and don't deal and treacherously. don't deal treacherously, which is where the focus is supposed to be. Don't be the dealer of abominations. Right. right. So God hates the treachery that brings about a divorce is another way in which I think people could use that contextually. I'm not saying that's, it does say God hates divorce, I'm saying, but they could use that contextually to explain it. Yet, God hates that your husband's cheating on you. Yeah. Bringing about this divorce. I'm not saying you have to get divorced, I'm saying, but instead of then shifting and using it as a club to kind of like end the conversation, which I've seen and experienced. Yeah. Well, using that. And then from that, it often flows, I've seen the whole, the opposite. Well, then God loves marriage. Yeah. And where else in scripture do we find the idea that the love of God is issued toward a thing? It, it may be true as it, is, as it goes, but it's God loves the people. Yeah. <laughs> in the marriage. It's not that God has this idea. He has this like, oh, I just love this shiny thing called marriage. Mm-hmm. And I hate this ugly thing called divorce. Mm-hmm. Every time we see God's love and hate, it's directed toward persons and their activity, not towards something impersonal. And I think that also can be used, and it kind of makes it sort of like God is cold. Mm-hmm. Um, he just hates divorce and thinks that you got his problem, but you know what? You deal with it. Yeah. God hates this thing. You get to say the same thing and maybe another little perspective of that too is that I, somebody, that person that comes to, for counsel could very well say I hate divorce too like this is never what was intended this is never what I wanted this is never what God wanted this is, like, in, that se- in that sense they could join their voice, voice to God's and, and as, they, as they perhaps even as they file papers say I hate this too like, there, there's that aspect of it as well. Brings up a verse that I've always pondered too. It's what God joined together, let no man separate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know from my own experience, that also too is kind of a sticky issue. Like, like Matt was saying, I hate divorce. <clears throat> God brought you together, let no man separate it. Yeah, it's, it's good to have strong, even general statements, statements of intention. It was, it's never intended for something that God birthed to be destroyed. That's never, like, we shouldn't separate that. That's a good general statement. It's something we should embrace. I think what it is is, uh, it says what God has joined together um, I, I know people have said, well, how do I know that God even joined me together with my wife? <laughs> you know, I mean, if you're married to her, then you're joined together. If you're married, you're joined, how, how, does, how do I know if God gave me the gift of singleness? I'm single. That's how I know. Right? Because he has gifted us by our circumstances. He has given us either marriage or no marriage, and therein we know exactly what he wants us to be doing. Right? We know if he's called us to singleness by the fact that we're not in a covenant marriage. And we know that he's called us to covenant companionship if we're in a covenant relationship. So I think it can be easy to overcomplicate that and to like muse outside of circumstances towards something that isn't. Right. Um, And and that's why I've heard people say, well, how do I know it was God that joined me together with this person? What if I married the wrong person? I think that would be a misinterpretation of the verse, though. Like, God joined you together by covenant. 
So when, when you said, I do, God joined you together. That's how, that's how it went. That's why the vows are so significant, because they bind us. They birth us into a new union. So, okay. Yeah, so that, that was what we talked about initially on, on day one of Malachi. If it was there, it would be verse 11. The Lord's holy, which he loves. So we had, t- we had talked briefly about that um, because it looks like, at least in this translation, it says he loves marriage. He hates divorce, but it doesn't actually say he loves marriage. So the words are uh, the Lord's holiness or holy thing, the holy, which he loves. So an interpretation of that could be, as New King James interprets, the institution of marriage. I think in this first half, uh, he's more strongly emphasizing the holiness of covenant, the connection to, not marriage covenant, uh, his set-apartness to himself, the glory of Yahweh, that he, that he wanted Abraham, he wanted Isaac, Jacob, Levi, all of them to live toward him. And they're demonstrating that they haven't lived toward him. How? By not just not doing the marriage thing, but actually by doing the marriage thing in the wrong direction, by inviting idolatry. So for those reasons, I think it's probably stronger. Well, it's not as maybe cool in the love-hate picture that what he loves is himself, his glory, his holiness, his uniqueness. Yeah, the wor- I mean, it's just the Lord's holiness, which he loves. So the question is, what is his holiness? An option is marriage. Yeah. Probably not the strongest one to my study so far. So in general, yeah. you think, I would say, or my understanding now is that, well, in general, God loves his holiness. Mm-hmm. He instituted marriage. He mm-hmm. proclaimed it to be mm-hmm. whatever God decrees. <laughs> that comes from his holiness. Sure. So this is a subset marriage yes under. though though keeping in mind that the remember this the two sections of the text this is found in the first section if it was found in the second it would be easier to say he loves marriage meaning keep it hold on to it stay mar- stay married to the covenant companion the problem in the first half is who they've married he loves fidelity to himself and they welcome something outside of that they connected themselves to something anti-God. That's the problem. That's what attacks his holiness. Not so much the, mer- the institution of marriage. Because they actually are upholding the institution of marriage in the first half. In all the wrong ways. It, does, that make, does that make sense? I, so I think it's more strongly arguing from the top, from 10 and 11 down... We have one Father. God made us. We have the covenant of the fathers. You profaned His holiness. Then He moves to by committing idolatry, by worshiping other gods, by connecting yourself in covenant to Asheroth. Could we include our help to understand that by thinking of it? 
tension in marriage? Back down in verse 15. Yep. Never intended for his godly people to marry somebody that... Yep, yep. So toward that, you have the end of 14 and 15, that he intended a wife in the covenant, to, in holiness. And he intended then children in covenant, children raised in holiness and the fear of God. So yes, by implication. For, what, what do we make of this for uh, us in this age? Us as Christians or us as humans? You mean not us? I meant, is it a cultural question or a Christian question? No, that's what I meant. Christian, Christian question. Yeah, so I think that's the application at the end is that we take it seriously like God takes it seriously. And that young people marry inside the covenant of faith. Uh, uh, because you see the danger of not doing so here as an illustration, that you marry yourself to an, an antichrist. And that's not desirable. That's not, the, the natural fruit of that will not be children who fear the Lord. So that would be an unwise direction to go. I think it's very strong evidence there. Uh, And then strong evidence for people inside of covenant to say, I need to be faithful to this covenant. Like like that verse 14 and 15 especially, that's very strong. Like be serious about uh, maintaining, staying with your covenant companion. So I I mean, I think those two are pretty... The pretty softball applications, right? <laughs> okay. We'll wrap it up.